0: Hello, it's Basha Cummings here. I'm an editor at Tortoise, which is the home of Sweet Bobby, Hoaxed and many more award-winning investigative podcasts. I'm here to tell you about Tortoise Investigates, where we curate the best of our chart-topping investigations in one place. Everything from extraordinary tales of deception to a suspicious killing to one mother's decades-long fight with the police. Just search for Tortoise Investigates wherever you get your podcasts.
3: I was in the kitchen, (laughs) looking at
1: my phone,
3: as usual, and talking to other parents, and we were happy. We were very happy. It's a bright summer's day, late in July, and news starts to spread that an NHS clinic in North London is being shut down.
4: That was a huge, huge thing. I think someone tweeted it and then I contacted the support group and said, is this, you know, my God, is this true?
3: As the news ripples out, it has a powerful effect.
4: And everyone, everyone was piling, you know, saying, yes, it is. So it was good news, very good news.
3: Notifications are pinging on phones and the headlines are being rewritten.
4: I
0: was at home at my desk.
3: For some, there's relief and even euphoria
0: pleased. I was pleased for the doctors that I've interviewed over the years, that they're whistleblowing and everything they've said to me is being vindicated.
3: But for others, something closer to despair.
2: I was at work. I had to go sit in the toilets for a few minutes and just sit with that news. I saw the breaking news notification and I just thought it felt like a punch in the gut. I thought, I don't know how I'm getting through the rest of this afternoon
3: there's confusion. Then that turns into anger.
5: I, I can't really describe how I
2: feel. I mean, I, I, think, I think we feel very betrayed um, and uh, disenfranchised, silenced. And uh, there's a lot of fury and, and anxiety really as well.
3: What's announced on that day in late July feels bigger than the sum of its parts. It's more than just a decision to close a clinic. It feels like a verdict, a judgement even. Because the clinic that's being closed down is the Gender Identity Development Service based at the Tavistock Centre in North London. To those in the know, it's simply the Tavistock or the TAVI. The NHS service offers support for children and adolescents suffering from gender dysphoria. It's the only such service in England and Wales. And it's become a lightning rod for a vicious row.
2: We need to talk about the uh, Gender Identity Clinic, uh, the Child Gender Clinic, the Tavistock
5: How can this be right that well, we're referring Sorry, kids of this age sure for potential surgery children, to change their sex?
3: One that's escalated from the corridors of the Tavi…
5: Let's call it what it is. It's a fad.
3: …to online chat rooms, to the highest courtrooms in the land and even the House of Commons.
2: That The NHS services in this area are too narrow, they are overly affirmative and in fact they're bordering on ideological.
3: It's a row that is playing out in social media timelines, (laughs) on newspaper front pages, in schools, within homes and families. It's a nuclear level toxic row where the battle lines have been drawn And history is still being decided. And I'm going to explain, as fairly as I can, how we got here. I'm going to tell you the story of the most controversial clinic in the NHS. I'm going to take you inside to understand what's really been happening in the Gender Identity Development Service at the TAVI. It treats children with gender dysphoria, what the NHS describes as a sense of unease a person may have because of a mismatch between their biological sex and their gender identity. I want to abbreviate that into something simpler but in this story definitions really matter. For years the headlines about the Tavi have been dark and foreboding. If you followed it casually you might have an image of a sinister place. I studied history But one thing I never understood was how the really bad things were allowed to happen. And now I understand how very bad things can happen.
4: If JIDS wasn't there, if if gender identity clinics weren't a thing and trans ideology wasn't there, she'd just be a girl. But for others, it's promised support, help, resolution, a lifeline
3: even.
2: I've always, always struggled with body image issues. And going through male puberty when I didn't want to only exacerbated that tenfold. I wish that, say when I was 14, 15, I wish I'd been referred to puberty blockers because it wouldn't make life so difficult for me now in terms of presenting how I want to.
3: Is the Tavistock a lifeline that's helping some of the most marginalised and vulnerable young people at a crucial moment in their lives? or? Are we witnessing one of the biggest medical scandals in NHS history unfold? Or is the truth more complicated, hidden in between these two positions and different for every person who passes through the Tavis' doors?
0: At the time, I think we were genuinely conscientious people trying to do the right thing in a very conflicted world.
2: I have had people openly mock me I've had people harass me. I just don't understand how people think it's a choice or that it's not real. I wouldn't choose to be harassed. I wouldn't choose to have a rape alarm in my bag whenever I leave the house. But I kind of feel that I have to because people just can't learn to to let people live their damn lives.
3: It's such a toxic debate that people stay away Journalists swerve it, politicians dodge the question if they can. It's become shrouded in self censorship and a fear of saying the wrong thing. I need to put that fear to one side and try to respectfully and carefully show how this all happened. I want to open up this story and let in some light rather than add to the noise. What I've learned is that this ...isn't the story you probably think it is.
0: Someone described it, and I think it's a really good way of putting it... ...like, you know, those photos where there's a dress... ...and some people say it's turquoise... ...and some people say it's, I can't remember, is it dark blue or something... ...and I think it's a bit like that, isn't it? You might remember the photo of that
3: dress. It went viral at the time. Some people saw it as blue and black... ...and others as white and gold... ...despite it being exactly the same dress. This story is a bit like the black and gold dress. Different people see it in totally different ways, depending on their beliefs. Some people have worked out what they think already. Others have avoided this subject at all costs, put off by the language and the vicious tone of the debate. I don't plan to tell you what to think. I'm going to tell you what happened. I'm going to take you with me inside the clinic Because from inside this story, you can start to understand something more about this particular culture war that's dividing families, workplaces, generations and even society. I'm Polly Curtis and from Tortoise, this is The Tavistock, Episode 1, A Verdict. So we've just walked up three flights of stairs, I'm a bit out of breath, um, but there's two long corridors, one to my left, one right in front of me, um, there's three, there's one to the right as well, and at the end of two of them there's the kids logo which has the eye in bubbles bursting in lots of different colours, and it's a long grey corridor with lots of meeting rooms on either side and some really interesting patient artwork.
2: We got a letter about two, three weeks before the appointment um, and it was that relief. It was, I can breathe finally. I've got that first appointment. I'm, I'm in the system now.
3: This is Steph Preston, one of nearly 20,000 children and young people who have attended the clinic at the Tavistock in the past 10 years. Steph's now 20 and identifies as non-binary. Getting the letter with the first appointment feels momentous, because it is. There's nowhere else in the NHS you can go for treatment if you're under 18 and feel that your gender doesn't fit with the one on your birth certificate. The treatment offered at the Tavistock's people like Steph involves lengthy therapy sessions with clinical psychologists and sometimes involving the parents too. But it's not the talking therapy which has placed the Tavi at the centre of the culture war.
2: I remember kind of explicitly saying when they asked what I wanted, I want puberty blockers and oestrogen.
3: It's the puberty blockers. Puberty blockers do what they say on the tin. They block and delay the changes brought on by puberty. They're the first stage on the road to a medical transition. If you want their official name, it's gonadotrophin releasing hormone analogues. But everyone calls them puberty blockers. And this is the central question I start this story with. I want to know whether we're doing the right thing by medicalising kids. Since 2011, some trans children have been given puberty blockers to arrest the onset of puberty, or suppress it and pave the way to further hormonal treatment after the age of 16. That's oestrogen for trans girls, testosterone for trans boys. Medical transition means a lifetime of treatment, a cost that many feel is worth it. But we don't actually know the true costs. The evidence on the longer-term side effects is limited. This is where the row starts. Are the benefits worth those unknown risks? And are the rollercoaster teenage years the right ones in which to make these decisions? There are risks in treating children. What if they come to regret it? Some of the effects of medically transitioning are permanent and the long-term effects are But there are also risks in not treating children, that it leaves them suffering the debilitating effects of gender dysphoria for too long. We know many people come out as transgender much later in life after struggling, sometimes for decades. The evidence base is limited and the stakes on both sides are high. The clinic has become inextricably linked with puberty blockers in the media, in the minds of its critics and of those desperate for help.
4: We finally got to the top of the waiting list and I think she just thought, you know, we would go into the Tavistock and they would give her a prescription for puberty blockers.
3: The TAVI offers a vast range of psychological services to adults and children. I'm interested in just one of them, a clinic known as JIDS, or the Gender Identity Development Service.
6: It's a clinic that's been overseen by the same woman for more than 13 years. So I am Polly Carmichael and I'm a consultant clinical psychologist and I've been in the gender service since 2001 and uh, clinical director um, since 2009.
3: She's quietly spoken, deliberate in what she says and very thoughtful. At times during our conversation she's guarded clearly nervous about being misunderstood or misquoted at others she's disarmingly candid by her side for many of those years in charge was her de
0: facto deputy Bernadette Wren well I'm a clinical psychologist by training and a family therapist systemic family therapist by further training and I worked at the Tavistock in one way or another for 25 years
3: Bernadette's cut from the same sort of cloth as Polly. North London, middle class, perhaps a little bit older. But where Polly has this kind of Teflon coating that makes it feel like she can deflect any question about her work, Bernadette is still wrestling with whether they did the right thing. The whole question
0: of how you... how you provide treatment for broadly mental health, but crossing over into identity, questions, particularly with young people, without, in some sense, at a population level, making the whole thing worse, is a very, very large question. She's still struggling with the dilemmas and argues them through with me in
3: the course of our long conversations. I mean, I have a a lot of thoughts about what we might have done differently, Sometimes she brings me huge clarity, then we lose focus and the subject becomes confusing again. These two women, Polly Carmichael and Bernadette Wren, are key to
6: understanding what's been going on inside the Tavistock. It's a Gender Identity Development Service, so young people are following a developmental trajectory. There's something about non-judgmental acceptance of a young person's gender identity problems and I guess our role is is about working with young people and their families to explore
0: that. You're trying to build trust but you're trying to do it in a way that people can sort of buy into and make it that they will come back and that these things can be spoken about and aren't too terrifying to be spoken about okay so there's a lot going into that and it's always completely underplayed when people talk about the work it's not about a
6: train getting to a destination is Chid's a mental health service
3: a physical health service or something else
6: well it's not a mental health service but obviously the people working within the tavistock have very often mental health training backgrounds. And young people experiencing gender dysphoria often experience mental health difficulties um, for a range of reasons, some associated with their gender, some not.
3: I want to ask you a, a kind of difficult question, but say now if you're not comfortable with it. Which is, what What do you think makes you trans?
2: Okay. It's very loaded. Like, I don't know where to start with unpacking that one.
3: You might be questioning who I am to wade into this, to ask questions such as this. What expertise or experience do I bring? What baggage do I carry? I've been a journalist all my career. I was born biologically a woman, and I have never questioned my gender identity. I am a feminist. I have a nine-year-old son and a 16-year-old daughter whose approach to her friends' various gender identities is liberated to the point of breeziness. They wear their gender lightly. This is difficult territory. This story has become toxic and mean at the extremes. People feel silenced by its ferocity. It is dehumanised. I hate that women who still have so far to go to achieve equal rights and to end misogyny, are pitted against young trans people who face so much prejudice. So the reason I want to ask, and I think, you know, and and the reason I will stray into kind of asking a question which can feel really loaded, I totally recognise that, and really questioning your experience, is because when a clinician is making the decision about puberty blocker what they're trying to do is understand with that person is that person going to still feel that way in five, ten years time and I think it is a question that things come back to and and, and you can say now if you're like no that question is just offensive.
2: I'm fine with it because I think like if a young trans person Mm. listened to it and didn't know they're trans or didn't understand it, then, like, Mm. just help that one person realise something about themselves. is like, mission accomplished Mm -hmm. in life, Die happy. Like, I'd rather educate people than just be, like, we're not going to discuss anything. Mm -hmm. Like, it's a difficult one to unpack because it's just... I am me. It's just who I am. And, like...
3: Yeah, yeah, I get that.
2: If everyone else gets to live their life like that, why can't we?
3: It might not be obvious to you, But the reason I'm so uncomfortable asking Steph the question of what makes them trans is that it is, frankly, an offensive question. Imagine asking someone what makes them gay. It's that. It's offensive. But I'm not asking it to be offensive. I'm asking it because it's impossible to try and understand this story if you're not trans without hearing this from trans people. It goes to the heart of the puberty blocker question. As a teenager, how do you know if you'll always be trans and therefore that the drugs are the right course of treatment?
2: I always knew there was something that made me different from other kids my age. Always felt it, never really understood it. And so I came out as gay initially and then I came out as gender fluid. Kind of tried to push that aside, came out as a trans woman and now I'm happy being non-binary.
3: Steph is somewhere between male and female. If you imagine a sliding scale with male at zero and female at 100, Steph says that they are a 75 or maybe an 80, so a bit on the feminine side.
2: I always say to people, my pronouns are they then. If you're going to fall back to a binary, she, her is fine. I'm not going to get upset by that. He, him, I really don't want to be used.
3: Steph is now 20, but their journey to the Tavistock and beyond begins a decade ago when they came out first as gay.
2: I was of the generation that always watched YouTube and used YouTube as a way of finding other people like myself. And so that was kind of how I discovered that side and how to label that. But it never, it never felt complete. It never felt like an full accurate description of who I am and how I felt.
3: So when when did you start to question there was something more than being gay?
2: Again, YouTubers and generally people in the public eye, it kind of became more obvious and I kind of felt like I could see other people who weren't just gay, bi or straight, and that there were people who identified as trans and queer and all these other identities.
3: Steph tells me a story, even though they worry, it fits a certain stereotype often used by those who are looking to play down the trans experience.
2: I used to play Minecraft a lot and always enjoyed having the girls' skins, as they call them, more than the boys' ones.
3: If you're not an expert on Minecraft... You should know it's a computer game with infinite opportunities to build an imaginary world from blocks. It's really creative. My son loves it. He can talk about it forever. Skins are costumes for the characters, you assume.
2: And so, would put the girl's skins on my character, and then it was kind of this realisation, oh actually, something about this is resonating with me. And I had a group of friends who were all over in America and Canada that I would stay up till the early hours of the mornings with playing games on Skype. And three of us realised we were trans at the same time. So there was my friend Tristan, who's a few years older than me, who realised he's a trans male. And my friend Cameron Cam, who also realised that he's a trans male, And we kind of realised at the same time, and we're like, should we chat about this in a separate kind of group chat?
3: Steph's using trans not as a description here, but as an umbrella term for all sorts of gender identities. Steph's two friends came out as trans men. But for Steph, it wasn't quite so straightforward. Sometimes they felt more male, sometimes more female, sometimes non-binary, meaning not solely male or female. They described themselves as gender fluid at that point. So when you think about that sliding scale that Steph described, imagine it's not fixed in one position. That's gender fluid. It can change with time or even day to day. But for a teenager who needs to go to school and who on each day might be expressing a different gender, that's... that's complicated.
2: Most people were awful, if I'm honest. People would laugh, people would, you could tell people were pointing at me or like singling me out. And I remember after a few weeks, I just felt, I'm just going to have to keep this to myself now because I can't go on like this. It kind of evolved into me telling friends and family that I was a trans woman or a trans girl.
3: You felt that it would be easier and more accepted to be trans than gender fluid.
2: Absolutely, because at least people can see a binary and people can understand man and woman and there's a clear distinction rather than people mocking me and saying, well, you're a boy or a girl today, and it's like, well, I actually don't feel like either, but everyone questioning it every single day. And that was really difficult.
3: This all happened before they'd even polled their parents. Steph came out in August 2015 at the age of 13.
2: And I just have this really distinct memory of it being like the evening, both my sisters were in their rooms, mum and dad were in the living room, and I was like, I need to talk to you both. I kind of said to them, mum, dad, I've got something I really need to tell you. Uh, I'm trans, I feel like a girl, um, and mentioning that I wanted to use the name staff. And I remember I broke down in tears before I'd even got the words out. And they were like, what's going on? Like, And the three of us just ended up hugging on the sofa. Because they said, of course we love you. Of course we support you. We're your parents.
3: Steph began to see a counsellor at school. And after a few months, the counsellor referred them to the TAVI. The timing is significant. It was 2016 and the Tavistock was coming under pressure with a big wave of referrals. For Steph, this felt like a new beginning. But for others, a referral to the Tavistock sets them on a path to a broken family.
5: Burrow.com slash ACAST. Ryan Reynolds
2: here from Mint Mobile.
4: Um,
3: gosh, how to start? This is Sandra. Sandra's not her real name, and her words are voiced by an actor. She doesn't want her child, who's now 16, to be identified. I'm going to follow Sandra and Steph through this series to understand what really happens inside the clinic.
4: It started very gradually, almost, without us noticing, because, you know, it wasn't on our radars back then.
3: Sandra's child's birth sex was female. He now identifies as a boy. Even the way I've said that is problematic. Let me explain. For some, the more acceptable way to say this is assigned female at birth. They mean that the doctors looked at him and made the assumption that he was a girl because he was born with female sex organs. Critics of this would argue that sex is a scientific fact, not something that is assigned at birth. It is evidenced by our physical features and our chromosomes. Bear with me. I'm going to pause and make sure I'm explaining these concepts as we go along. It's also worth understanding what misgendering means. Many trans people find it incredibly upsetting and difficult when they are misgendered. Remember how Steph said they didn't want he, him used.
2: She, her is fine. I'm not going to get upset by that. He, him, I really don't want to be used.
3: It is a reminder of who they aren't, and they see it as an attack on who they are. Now when she's at home, Sarja calls her child he or him. But in our conversation, she refers throughout to her daughter. She misgenders her child. This leaves me with a dilemma. I don't want to misgender anyone. It feels disrespectful even if they can't hear me. I decide to follow Sandra's lead in our conversations because it's Sandra I'm speaking with. That means I misgender her child. If I don't, it will be very hard for me to hear her story and understand it. But when I'm talking about Sandra's child, I'm gonna refer to them as he. I don't like this inconsistency. It's a fudge,
4: but it's a way to tell the story and to try to understand. She was always a typical tomboy who loved climbing trees, wasn't into girly things at all. Didn't like all the pink sparkly clothes and fairy wings and all the rest of it. When Sandra's child was about six or seven, they asked to be called by a boy's name. And so we adopted it as a sort of nickname and it sort of stuck. When
3: did you feel it started to become a problem?
4: When she heard the term trans, which I'd never even heard of, and I suppose she must have been about seven or eight, maybe a bit older, and a friend of hers at school said, oh, maybe she's trans, and I didn't know what she was talking about. I'd never heard the term before. And that's when I think she started to find all these trans YouTubers. And I think that's when she got the idea in her head. Oh, that must be what I am.
3: At this point, Sandra is really not worried about what's happening. She's quite sanguine. They're a liberal family and they don't see the problem with a child being transgender. Then something happens that knocks them off course. When he's eight, Sandra's child starts having problems with eating and body image issues.
4: You know, it became a complete obsession. It was exhausting.
3: At the same time, Sandra's child started to put on weight. Sandra believes the combination
4: of these two factors marked a turning point. Which I think has resulted in a deep-seated sort of body hatred, you know. I think she thinks she's fat and ugly from having gained that weight when she was young. The move to secondary school a few years later was the next turning point. That really is when the whole trans issue became a crisis, because she was by then presenting as a boy. The primary school, everybody had known her since they were sort of five, but at the new school she wanted everyone to think she was a boy. So she, she started that school as yes, a boy? presenting as a boy. How did you feel about it? Well, I think at that stage we were still affirming it. How did she tell you that she was going to go to school? Well, she, she would only wear the boys' uniform, you know. There were different uniforms, so she would wear the, uh, the boys' and we'd explain to the school and they were fine with her wearing the boys' clothes.
3: So at the time you were really working with her? Yes, yes, and trying to help. Sandra is still affirming her child's trans identity at this point. That word, affirming, you're going to hear that a lot, because not everyone agrees on what it means.
4: Originally we thought it was a bit like being gay or lesbian, so you know it wasn't an issue, it was fine. But the more I started looking into it, the more I realised that it's, it's not the same, it's not at all the same as a sexual orientation it's completely different but a creeping doubt
3: sets in for sandra it's a creeping doubt about her decision to allow her child to live as a boy she goes on social media and reads everything she can what she's reading is fueling her fears
4: she has all these other issues as well you know she was seeing a counselor at school but at secondary school, there's no contact between the counsellor and parents. So I really you don't really know what's going on.
3: And it's around this time that a medical specialist he's seeing for a completely
4: separate condition suggests a referral to the Tavistock. Oh, um, should I refer you to the Tavistock? And I'd sort of held off. Um, lots of people had said to me, oh, you know, you should get referred to the Tavistock. Anyway, I agreed. Uh, against my better judgment.
3: As I set out to understand the clinic, I'm not short of things to read. There's report after report by whistleblowers, NHS controllers, and even the High Court. I get slightly obsessive and read 10 years' worth of Tavistock board papers searching for mentions of JIDS. And in the first few years, there's no mention. JIDS is such a small part of the Tavistock story that they even get its name wrong, extraordinarily calling it the Gender Identity Disorder Service. Just to be clear, most trans people would find this really offensive. Then in the past five years the service comes to dominate the board papers. It's mentioned endlessly as it scrambles to scale up to meet a rising flood of referrals. I'm starting to build up a timeline of a tiny service operating seemingly without much scrutiny, hit by a wave of referrals and a cultural revolution in trans visibility the scrutiny comes and now it's closing. In the middle of it all is the long-serving clinical director, Polly Carmichael. As I trawl through newspaper cuttings, broadcast interviews and social media, I see how the clinic has been portrayed and the storm of controversy it has weathered along the way. And yet I don't find much of Polly. Her public profile remains low. I did find one interview she did for a Channel 4 documentary in 2016. It's called Kids on the Edge, and there's a moment in it which stops me in my tracks.
6: And in some senses, culture and society are moving faster in terms of what they think they understand about it and what they think we should do about it than the evidence base. That's from six years ago, but it feels
3: important, that idea that the culture is moving faster than the science. She's not defending the service or pretending she has all the answers. In fact, she's frank about the
6: evidence vacuum that they're operating in. We don't really know whether this is the right treatment for everyone, whether there are long-term implications of this treatment but for families and young people, you know, it can be very difficult because they're seeking certainty. She's openly
3: admitting to some of the things they've since been accused of, chiefly that they're operating without an evidence base.
6: The reality is, at the moment, we don't have certainty.
3: Sometimes in journalism, we go by the back door, finding whistleblowers inside sources, we convince people to leak us information or force it out using transparency laws. And I'll do some of that. But sometimes it's best just to go through the front door. The Tavistock press office is initially wary and getting access to poly takes a while. The press officer tells me he's combed through my social media posts to check me out. But finally, it's agreed. So I'm sitting in the podcast studio, just waiting for Polly Carmichael to join us for the first of our interviews for this podcast. I feel excited. I feel like I have spoken to so many people, read so much, absorbed so much information that I almost want to put that aside and just listen to her version of the account we've barely begun when she says something
6: extraordinary i I look back and you know even when i took over directorship of the service in 2009 and i'd been there you know long time by then, many years and i sort of felt oh my god i really don't know what i'm doing you know i really you know i don't feel i know enough about this That year, 77 children were referred to JIDS.
3: It was hardly on the radar. But just over ten years later, that number had risen to more than three and a half thousand. In a decade, everything has changed. Coming up in episode two, how much kind of day-to-day was that waiting list playing on your mind? Every day. What was your fear?
0: The fear was that whatever... We tried. We had no adequate response to it.
2: He was a tough man, the the dad, you know, real hands-on job. And he wept in the first meeting because he was just completely beyond anything he'd ever known.
4: So their starting point is the child is trans. How is the child coping with life? It's not, why do you think you are trans? Why do you want to present as a boy when you're actually a girl? Which is what I naively thought would be the starting point but it it, it wasn't
0: it's easier now to look back and think you know was that the wise thing to do thanks for listening episode two is live today and we'll
3: drop two episodes each week after that but if you can't wait you can listen to more now by subscribing to tortoise plus on apple podcasts or joining tortoise as a member where you can access more of our reporting and support our work Episode 3 is available for paid subscribers now. Visit tortoisemedia.com forward slash Tavistock. This series is reported and written by me, Polly Curtis. The producer is Katie Gunning. The executive producer is Jasper Corbett. The Tavistock is a Tortoise production.
5: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, I'm John Curtis.
0: And I'm Rachel Wolfe.
6: This week on Trendy, the monarchy. A year after the coronation and as King Charles returns to work, what do we think of it and how has that changed
0: over time?
5: To listen to the episode, search for Trendy on Tortoise News wherever you get your podcasts and follow the feed to make sure you don't miss an episode.